Welcome to New Life Baptist Preaching, where we grow in relationship, we grow in discipleship, and we grow in Jesus Christ. In this series, we enter a study of the letter to the Hebrews. In this study, we see how Jesus is better. He is the better revelation. He is the better priest. He is the better sacrificed. He is the better king. He brings the better covenant. So we hope that you join us as we grow together and learn more of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Subscribe so that you don't miss a single Lord's Day sermon. Not something that we hear one time 
and then we just move on beyond it without being constantly be reminded that our justification is found in you and in you alone. There's nothing that we could do apart from your son to save ourselves. He is the ultimate authority. I thank you for the book of Hebrews and the wisdom that you have given to the author of this book. Lord, I pray that we receive it and realize that these are not old words of text that was meant for a group of people just off in the distant past, but that these words today are as relevant for us now as they were for them at that time. God, that we be reminded that when we read Hebrews or any other portion of Scripture, that your word does not grow old, but your word is more of today than tomorrow's newspaper. That it's not just made for some to hear. It's not just made for some to know. It's made for all to hear. But you know who will receive. We don't know. God, may we be a people that love our neighbors so much that we do not hide your word from them. May we be a people that love your word so much that we not hide the understanding of your word merely in our mind, but that we allow your word to penetrate our heart, to shake us from our slumber, and to ultimately bend the knee and submit to your son. It's in his perfect and holy name I pray this morning. Seated. So, one thing that's been my habit here lately when preaching is uh, I kind of like to go ahead and tell you what my overarching point is from the beginning so you don't get in the car later and say, what was his point? Okay? So, the overarching point this morning that we draw from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 11 is this. We need, we have no need to wonder what God thinks of our unbelief. We have no need to wonder what God thinks of our unbelief. His thoughts of unbelief and his actions of unbelief are clearly known throughout the scripture. And we also see it in the testimony of the lives of people around us. So to add some further context to verses 7 through 11 this morning, um, what we have here, and I, I'm going to keep saying author because we can say Paul. We don't know definitively if it's Paul, so I'm not going to speculate on who the author is. We haven't done that thus far. But the author is giving both counsel and giving caution to the recipients that are hearing these words. Counsel of what they ought to do with the understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Now, once again, we're getting a snapshot of a larger portion of text and if you haven't been with us in the study of Hebrews, understand that where we find ourselves right now is that the author is pointing back again and saying, this is who Christ is. This is how much greater he is than all other things. This is how you can see the prophecy fulfilled, that he fulfills all of it. There's no other man who could ever do that. Even to the smallest dot of prophecy, he's completely fulfilled it. You're waiting for a Messiah? Wait no longer. He has come, he has died, and he has risen. And now I'm writing to you and bringing this good news, this gospel message. Just a reminder, the word gospel itself, to be an evangelist, is someone who brings news of victory. 
So the gospel is the good news of victory, and that's all Hebrews is driving the point home time and time again, and beautifully, beautifully uses the Old Testament to solidify the truths of this new covenant found in Jesus Christ. There is nothing else that you have to wait on. He's the fulfillment of all that has been prophesied. He is greater than the angels. He is greater than any construct of man. And those who would find themselves in him must act as if they belong to him. It's caution. It's warning. It's counsel. So that's the counsel. You ought to understand who Christ is and be cautioned against disobedience knowing what you know of him. That's the beautiful thing about communicating the gospel to believer and unbeliever. The unbeliever is already under the wrath of God for not submitting to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I've probably said this before in the pulpit, but it's worth reiterating again. No person has ever made Jesus Christ Lord. We say that, and it's not even that we say that maliciously. He is Lord. He is Lord of the believer. He's Lord of the unbeliever. He's Lord of the outright pagan. It doesn't matter how far you wandered away from him. He is still Lord actively reigning and ruling right now. Not just to come. He's reigning right now. And if we get that into our theology, if we have this high Christology of who Christ is, we should fear and tremble in our disobedience. I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to myself as well. Why is it that we make light of our sins? The believer and the unbeliever. Why is it that we make light of our transgressions and our disobedience? Might it be that we have a low view of God? Might it be that we have a low view of who His Son is? To think that His rule and His reign is just something superficial or merely spiritual or something that's just out there somewhere without realizing that we are under Him right now. He's ruling. He's reigning. He's king of kings. He's lord of lords. He moves the heart of the ruler. He chooses those who are going to rise up and those who are going to fall. You look around you and you see tyranny. Vance had alluded to it earlier. You see war and you see rumor of war and you see distress and you see despondence. And then we wonder, why? 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 Have we been faithful? He is judging the nations Judgment is not just something later. Judgment is taking place now. And this is a caution to these people. And it's a caution just as much for us today as it was for them at that point in time. When we hear and we consider the words of the Holy Spirit, we are using that caution to our benefit. When we read the word and we decide what we like and what we don't like, we are grieving the Lord as a result. This is His Word. We're called to apply the understanding of His Word. Not once. Not twice. Not the week after you're saved. But as a walking in sanctification and obedience to Him. This is a continuation of the counsel and the, and the, and the caution that's being given here. When we read, therefore the Holy Spirit says, today... If you will hear his voice. I know that I didn't read beyond our passage of scripture that we're in today. But if you do so. You'll see that the word today is used quite often. 
please don't take the use of the word today to mean that the author was saying today, this very moment, just that day when they read it, that this is the moment to act. But to realize that this is a continual exhortation for all who will read, all who will know. Today written here does not translate for us to mean today of then. It translates directly to mean today for us, this very moment and all of our days. Today, if you hear, hasten to the word. I had the opportunity to preach from the beginning of Hebrews chapter 2 a couple weeks ago. And I feel like in conversation and any time that I've had the opportunity to preach or be before people, I feel like I'm always going back to Hebrews 2 now. Hebrews 2, chapter 2, is talking about that you take heed to what you've been told. Let me go to it. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, which it did, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall you escape if you neglect so great salvation? You know the outcome. You know that what's been spoken is true. Think about this. Let's, let's try to line this up. I'm going to try to make this make sense. We'll see if it tracks, okay? If the prophecy of the Old Testament is true, well, that means something. If those words, as I just said, spoken through the angels are true, which they are, that means something. If we know what happens when we transgress and we disobey God, that means something. We know this is true. We know that this is true, that he is a God of wrath and he is a God of grace and forgiveness. So then why would we think that the means of salvation that's offered to us would not be true if these two things are true? This is true as well. And if this is true, then we are in grave error to neglect this aspect of the salvation that's being offered to us. This is what he's reiterating here, is he not? This is the point that he's reiterating through all of this text and this portion of the text, is that therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and we're going to get to where he's referring to this at, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. It's a warning. It's a warning to us all. To know and not to do is to act in outright rebellion. I'm thankful that we have a lot of kids here. Many of us in here have kids, whether they be newborns or whether we be empty nesters, whatever the case may be. We have children, right? And I'm sure we're not the only ones. Maybe we are. But my children will occasionally act in outright rebellion. <laughs> so you all have this too. Don't do this. And then you turn around and Boone's out the door. I use Boone as an example, but he's not the only one. Okay? It's outright rebellion, is it not? Did he hear our voice? Yes, he heard our voice. Did he heed the instruction that we gave him? No, he didn't. And our kids, if they don't do that, and they get in the habit of doing that, if we get in the habit of doing that ourselves to our Heavenly Father... We put ourselves in a very, very dangerous place very, very quickly. Our child doesn't understand that the oven taught until we inform them or until they experience it for themselves. The author of Hebrews is saying to them, you have an example laid before you. Don't let your heart be hardened. 
as it was in the wilderness. This is where we are. So I'll continue with this. <clears throat> knowing what we've already read thus far, we're going to break this down further here in just a moment, but knowing where we are, just with that introduction there, that today you hear his voice do not harden your hearts, I think it's important for us to remember, and it seems like we don't think about this until we have the loss of a loved one, or um, we see someone who loses a loved one, and then we start to get snapped back into the reality that our days are finite. No man knows the number of his days, and therefore we should never fall prey into the trap that obedience to God is something that we can put off for another time. I know that I've said this from the pulpit before, but I know I probably had this thought in the back of my head years ago, but I remember working with people um, when I was in high school and in college who would come to me like I was like, I don't know, I've always been kind of a little bit older for my age, I guess. And they'd go to me for like dad advice. It was probably not good advice back then. But they would confess to me, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And I'd say, well, then stop. Well, I don't really want to stop. I just don't like it. Well, then why are you still doing it? Okay, I kind of like it, right? And we can see that and say, well, that's awful. But how often do we do that ourselves? Of, I, I want to stop, but at the end of the day, I don't really want to stop. I'm not really taking it to him. I'm not really knocking. I'm not really asking. I'm just kind of complaining about that. what I do. That's, that's, a, that's a smaller thing, I guess you could say. But let's take it up just a notch. Like I just alluded to, there's, there's so many, and maybe ourselves at one point have said that we'll get right with the Lord at another time. When I have kids, when I get married, whatever, I've sown my wild oats. I'm going to use all of that as experience. Uh, I don't listen to a lot of modern country because it's, it's a lot of it's garbage. You guys probably know that if you have listened to modern country. Uh, but there was a song in particular, and I don't know how it goes, and I'm definitely not going to sing it. But I know that the, the context of it was, uh, I'm never going to be wise if I'm not crazy now. I'm never going to be wise if I'm not crazy now so that I can learn from it. Rather than doing all of that, rather than thinking that we have to sow our wild oats, not knowing when the Lord will call your time. Why don't we run to the book that provides all wisdom for teaching and correction and reproof? And I know that, I, I, I know, I understand that if I heard somebody say that years ago, they'd be like, well, it's easy for you to say you're a pastor. You're an elder, and you're going to, of course, say, like, don't do that, just run to this. No, I'm saying that as somebody who did the other option, thankfully not to the extent that I could have, and I'm here to tell you that it wasn't worth it. It was not worth it in the end. This isn't me preaching to somebody and saying, like, do what I did and, and everything will be fine. No, don't do what I did. Do this. This is way better. And when do you start? Today. When you hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, when do you act? You act today. In a similar line of thought, how many of us, speaking of myself once again, spent years playing church? Going through the motions. I'm there Sunday, I'm at Sunday school, I'm reading, I'm doing the thing, 
But in the back of your mind, you know there's no growth. There's no fruit. You might have a behavioral change. But you know deep down that you have not actually bent the knee and submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're in either one of those spots, that you'll get right one day or that you're finally playing church right now, understand that it says, take heed today when you hear his voice. Don't let your heart be hardened. So, if you're following along in the bulletin, the first blank there, it's the urgency of obedience. You might say, well, you've already covered that, Chris. Can we go to the second point? No, not yet. We're getting there, though. So, right here in this portion of the text, it's important to know that the author uses a lot of connecting, going back to the Old Testament, throughout Hebrews. So if you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. Psalm 95, 7 through 11. Before I read this portion of the text, I think it is paramount to point out that the author here says, in verse 7, therefore, as who says? As the Holy Spirit says. It's important for us to remember that the author here is communicating to the people that are his audience that the words that have been spoken are not the words merely of man, they're not the thoughts merely of man, but yet the words that are spoken that are referenced going back to Psalm 95 are the words of the Holy Spirit that were true then, that are true today, and that will always be true for as long as the Lord will tarry. So Psalm 95, this is going to sound a little bit familiar. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. For forty years I was grieved with that generation. And again, oh wait, I flipped too far. And said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. So I swore my wrath, and they shall not enter into my rest. It's the same scripture, isn't it? Do you think that the people who are being written to here in Hebrews, you know, the Hebrews, know their own history of the exodus, of the leaving of Egypt? Wouldn't they know the history of their own people and the wandering for 40 years? Do you think when they think of that, they probably don't look on that as a very, very positive point in their history, I would assume, because they know the disobedience of their previous generations toward God and the disobedience and what the fruit was of their disobedience. How many of those that were in the wilderness for 40 years made it into the promised land? They did not enter into the rest that they were promised. 
were disobedient, they were rebellious, they transgressed, they complained, they moaned, they murmured, and they had hardened hearts and would not even recognize the glorious gifts that God was giving all around them the whole time. The urgency of obedience. It is His being the Holy Spirit. It is His voice that renews the man. <clears throat> that revives the man from the dead. Um, when, when I have the opportunity to uh, lead Fellowship of Christian Students at the high school, I always try to drive home the point um, that a dead man can do nothing to save himself. And I know that I can say that. It's one thing, but I, just to be blunt, I want you to have the imagery of a dead person that they are so helpless and we should be grieved at the thought of someone who is no longer alive. I know that that's heavy. I get that. But is that not what's communicated of those who do not have a heart of flesh that's been saved by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? That's us apart from Christ. Dead. There's nothing there. It's gone. It's over. And it grieves us. And then allow that grief that you physically see there, apply that same grief to the hearts of loved ones and friends and co-workers that you know are dead in their sins and their trespasses. When we say, we, we say so much in the church, and I think that sometimes we forget what it is that we actually mean when we say it, but when we say that our, that our warring is not of flesh and blood, but it is of the spirit and principalities and goodness and darkness, understand that when you wield the sword of the spirit, when you wield God's word as the sword, and you're speaking truth to ignorance and to lies and to death and destruction, it's the most loving thing you can do. And it's hard. Because love is hard, isn't it? I mean, many of us are married. Some days are easier than others. But love is not merely emotion. Love is a decision. Love is an action. To love our neighbor as ourselves. We just mentioned earlier, please get a copy of that book by Brett Baggett back there. He does a beautiful job of communicating that if you truly want to love your neighbors, then you have to act in obedience to God. We can't rightly love our spouse. We can't rightly love our children. We can't rightly love our neighbor if we're not rightly loving God. It's essential. It's essential. I love my wife. I still love my wife. But I love her more because of the work of Jesus Christ. I love my children, but I love them more because of the work of Jesus Christ and understanding what he's done for me. This is the love. This is whenever we, whenever we read here. The Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear my voice, don't harden your heart. The hard heart is dead. The hard heart cannot be neutral. There is no neutrality in this. We cannot overlook the urgency of the gospel of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and understand that whenever His voice revives a man, it's not just miraculous acts or mere tradition that, re that revives you. I'm going to go there this morning, but there seems to be a wave across America and across the globe right now of Christianity 
that proclaims that unless you have these special spiritual gifts of, of tongues or visions or prophecy, then you don't belong to Christ. Not true. Not true. Don't buy. That is not the case. Do not let man put up guards and put up barricades from the one true and holy God between you and him by saying, well, you think that you know him, but you really don't because you can't do what we say that you need to be able to do. He doesn't need that. He can use that. And he is miraculous. You don't have to jump through these hoops. The ground is even at the foot of the cross. <clears throat> but that's the miraculous tax part. That's not what saves you. The gift of speaking in tongues does not save you. Just as tradition does not save you. Saying, well, I, you know, I, I was baptized in you know, 1983, and uh, I go to church, and I was a deacon, and you know, all this stuff. But then the person also says at the end of that, um, I've done the church thing. I just don't really feel like I need the church anymore. Uh, I just need Jesus. You do just need Jesus. And you need his bride. Because if you have him, then you're considered part of his bride, and you should seek to be with his bride. Mere tradition, mere experience is not going to be enough. I just finished reading The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. If I brought this up a couple weeks ago when I was preaching, I'm sorry. I don't know. I feel like I bring it up all the time now. But I love The Pilgrim's Progress because I love the simplicity of the naming that John Bunyan gives people in the book. It's pretty straightforward. When he says somebody's name, the odds are you're going to find out that they are like what he just named them as. The main character is Christian, obviously, okay? He has friends, <laughs> hopeful and faithful, okay? But he runs into some people along his pilgrimage. He runs into a lot of people. But I just want to make a quick point on this right here as far as understanding. And I know, we're still in, we're still in verse 1. When it says that today when you hear his voice, his voice is what softens the heart. His voice is what cultivates. His voice is what revives. Not the miraculous acts. Not the mere tradition. But in this book, Christian has been called by evangelists to go to the celestial city to be with the king, being Christ himself. But he's on this pilgrimage on the way there. He has a burden on his back. And three of the people that he runs into along the way, one of them is talkative. And he is exactly what his name says. He can talk the talk. He can say everything that would make you think that he bleeds Bible and he's got it forward, backward, left, or right. And one of the men that's with Christian says, we need to have this guy go with us. He's with us. He needs to go on the journey with us. But Christian, who's a little bit more battle-tested than what he was earlier on in the book, he says, no, 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 not just yet. I want you to go and ask him some questions. I don't want to just hear him talk. Ask him questions about who God is, who the king is, how he's going to be admitted into the celestial city. And talkative wants to talk all the way around the answers, and it becomes very, very clear to Christian's friend, talkative is not living it out. Talkative just knows what to say. Let us not be that. Let us not just be people who, who know what to say, but that knowing what to say applies to our hearts, and that we live it out. Another one that he runs into is legality. Well, you know, you could go on this pilgrimage. There's many people that have tried doing that, but there's a much easier way. You could just keep these laws 
statutes. Just stay in line with the tradition and you'll be fine. That's legality. He doesn't make it to the celestial city. Spoiler alert. The next is civility. And if I'm remembering correctly, I think that civility is the son of legality. And civility basically has that mantra that we hear a lot today of, well, you know, if you're a Christian, you just have to be kind. Just uh, be a good person. Just get along. What is that? What is kindness? What do, you, what do you mean by kindness, per se? Is it kind for me to see my neighbor who is burning their life because of a constant ongoing sin that they're flaunting, and I'm supposed to just celebrate and say, you do you. That would be kind in the worldly way, would it not? But yet it is unkind because we're not speaking truth. Think about it. How many of us in this room have heard and have, been, have had the effectual call of the Holy Spirit because somebody confronted us with things we did not want to hear? They weren't being kind in the moment. They weren't being civil in the moment. But they said what needed to be said. And by God's grace, the shackles fell. How often did we walk without even realizing, or not even realizing, that we were shackled by lies? By half-truths. Until someone was bold enough to come up and say, You're wrong. This is not right. Talkative, legality, civility. That won't save you. It's his voice. It's his effectual call. It's the call that Christian heard in his home when he left his family to go to the celestial city. It's that call. It's evangelists that's spurring him on. That's cultivating his heart toward the king. Not to derive... Not to go off to the side, to divert, to take this spot or this spot to try to take a shortcut, but no, go through every trial because the trial is going to purify you to be more equipped than you were before for the next trial. So that when you approach the dragon, you may fear, but it's not death that you ultimately fear because you know where your hope lies. Take on the dragon. The dragon can be defeated. I'm, I'm fired up. I love that book. Please read it. <clears throat> I want to say one thing to the children and then I'll move into the second portion here. When you read here, and I want you to hear me, kids, okay? When you read here, where we transition from verse 7 to verse 8, and it says, Do not harden your heart in rebellion. I want you to think about your heart as a stone, okay? I know that all of you kids in here are outdoorsy, all right? And all of us have gardens. How often do you guys take a large sandstone? Abram, have you done this before? Let's see. Have you ever taken a large sandstone and just dug it out of the ground and then went and shoved it in the garden and then you put your seeds right on top of the sandstone and expected it to grow a bunch of fruit or vegetables? Do you do that? You don't do that, do you? Why, why would you not do that? Would that be a wise decision? That would be a foolish decision, right? But what if that sandstone was already in the garden and you find it? What are you going to do? You're not going to bring it up, set it there, and then put your seeds on top, are you kids? What are you going to do with that sandstone? You're going to chuck it out of the garden, aren't you? And if your ground is as dry and as hard as that stone, what are you going to do? You're going to cultivate it, aren't you? Because you want the ground to be ripe and to be ready for the fruit to spring forth, correct? This is what he's saying about our hearts. Our hearts should not be a heart of stone. 
Our hearts should not be so bitter and turned against him to where whenever we hear the gospel, we immediately reject it and resent it because of our own hardened hearts. Cultivate. This is why if you're a parent, a young parent, if you're an empty nester, whatever, every time you have an opportunity to be with your kids or your grandkids, be cultivating. Cultivate, 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 because I assure you the world is not cultivating for them. Your children will be catechized by someone, whether it be you or not. Cultivate so that we can hear this. Be in the streams of grace. The next point is a legacy of disobedience. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 8 through 9. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In the day of the trials in the wilderness, where, the father, where your fathers tested me and tried me, and saw my words for 40 years. Think about all the miraculous things that the people in the wilderness had witnessed with their own very eyes. Think about all that they saw. And yet they had such hardened hearts that when they were in the wilderness, it took no time at all. What did they say? We're better off in Egypt. Moses, why would you take us out from where we had provision? We had good there. We're dying out here. We're thirsty. We're hungry. You get us out here so that we can die. Our kids die and the livestock dies. Shame on you, Moses. Shame on you, God, getting us out of here. Look, you got us out of a terrible spot and put us into a worse spot. The mumbling, the complaining, the hardened heart. Let's just stop for just a moment and think about the things that they witnessed with their own eyes. Because it's very, very easy. Maybe some of us have done this before, but I know that people say this. If I could just see God do this one thing, then I'll believe. If he would just do this one thing, I would be all for it. That doesn't mean that they would be saved. You don't have to see it. We are saved by grace through our faith. It's not simply by the miraculous things that we see. We see miraculous things every day. The fact that you and I get to catch breath is miraculous. So let's see some of the miraculous things that he did. Well, God struck plagues attacking directly the gods of Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. The fact that they were able to escape captivity, the parting of the Red Sea, this is another part that's just to me as cool as the parting of the Red Sea, was that as soon as they were across and their enemies were approaching, what did God do? Swallow them up. Gone. Don't worry about them. You're free now. This is miraculous. And even the acts of God while they were in the wilderness, let's go to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. I know that I'm looking around a lot, but it's so important to see. This is what the author's talking about. He's reminding them of their own history, saying, think about how it went for them when they did this, when they hardened their hearts. 1 through 7. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, 
What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you the same, or take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also, take in your hand the rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you. There is a rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of that place Mesa and Meribah, before, or because of the contention of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? They didn't trust the provision. They complained. They complained with the leader that they were given in Moses. And this is the warning that he's giving them here. When you see in verse 9 where it says, time right back to their own lineage. But should we look at this and say, well, that, he's talking about their lineage, not really ours, so maybe we can neglect this part. No, no, no. We shouldn't neglect this. This is a testimony of what God does in our disobedience. We have yet no reason to wonder. <clears throat> Where your fathers tested me, fathers, the use of the use of that word fathers there. Understand that if you don't know this by now, I'll tell you right now. Children are not punished by the sins of their father, but yet they are impacted by the sins of their father. And if we see our fathers sin, and we know the consequences of their sin, would we not be very, very foolish and negligent to fall into the same snares? That they have fell into. I don't know what everybody's situation has been with their father. It could have been a great man. It could have been an awful man. But if he was an awful man. And you decided to adopt and take up all of his horrible wretched behaviors. That one is on you. His isn't on you. But yours is on you. You're living in rebellion. This is a good clear reminder to them. Don't be foolish to fall into the same habits. They tempted and they provoked God. They distrusted him. They slandered Moses in his leadership of them. And I think that this also applies to us as well. In our home, something that we've kind of asked the kids, I think I picked this up in some book somewhere. Um, I know that y'all's kids don't whine, okay? Uh, but mine do sometimes, okay? Rachel didn't give me the confirmation this time. So our kids do whine. Um, and Sometimes I just stop and ask them, are you, are you being a thankster or a crankster? And I know that that sounds hokey, but it puts it right in front of their face, does it not? Are you being thankful for what you have, or are you ungrateful? Once again, they made pie yesterday, and they probably would have wanted more, right? Everybody wants a bigger slice all the time, especially whenever you're young. When you get older, you want it, but you're like, you know what? Thanksgiving's coming up. I probably need to slow down right now, okay? But you get a piece, and then you look over at somebody else's piece, and it might not even be any bigger. But you already decided in your head that they got more, right? And then what's the next thing? They got more than me. Why, why did they get more than me? Oh, hold on, hold on. They didn't get any more than you. But even if they did, are you not thankful for the piece that we gave you? Are you being a thankster or a crankster right now? And it, it, I know that it sounds hokey to say it that way, 
But I've had times where it pops into my head as well, where something happens that's not really that big of a deal, and I'm sitting there griping and complaining. I've been working on a generator that I just bought. Probably should have bought one that ran ahead of time. Either way, it's a generator. It's not the end of the world if it doesn't run, right? But it's been one thing after another. And I'm complaining. And I was in the shop the other day working on it, and it came to my mind. I mean, a thankster or a crankster. He's blessed me abundantly, and I can literally go buy a new carburetor for $14, and I'm sitting here griping about it. He blessed me with the money to even buy the generator to begin with. He blessed me with the shop to even be working in it. He blessed me with the family inside my warm home that I get to go into as soon as I'm done working. And I'm sitting here complaining because the $14 part isn't working right? Shame on me. But I'm human. That's natural. But I need to get over it and move on. He's good to me. He's so good to me. And when we have this hardened heart, we let ourselves continually be hardened. We remove our vision and our sight to see how gracious He actually is to us. Because He is gracious to us. He's gracious to all of us. Even those who have nothing, He is gracious to them. Our third and last point. He alone is the giver of all rest. Verses 10 through 11. Therefore I was angry with that generation. And I said, they go astray in their heart. And they have not known my way. So I swore my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. He is the giver of rest. Remember, as stated earlier, He is the ruler and the reigning sovereign king over all creation. He's actively ruling and judging the nations and the people as we speak. God is both patient and long-suffering, but may we never fall into the trap to think that because He's patient, because He's long-suffering, He doesn't care. That's not what this is. He's patient, He's long-suffering, that he notices everything. And I don't think that he notices everything just to strike fear in us, but to realize that he is not a deistic God that created the universe, spun it into action, and then said, you guys do whatever you want to do, I'm going to be over here. No, he's active. He's a loving father. And we reap what we've sown in our actions, do we not? And he uses these trials to purify us, to love him and depend on him even more. So knowing that we can't assume that he doesn't care, I'm not going to flip there right now, but I'm going to reference back to Haggai chapter 1. We study Haggai as a family. I highly recommend you study the book of Haggai. Haggai chapter 1 verse 6 is talking about, it's where the prophecy comes to Haggai, and he is before the governor, and he's before the high priest, and the word spoken through him as the Holy Spirit is, consider your ways. These people have left Babylonian captivity. They've gone back to Jerusalem. When they got back, they began rebuilding the temple. But because of public pressure, political pressure, all of these pressures, they decided that it wasn't worth building the temple. So God's house lies in ruins. They decided to build up their own homes. There's nothing wrong with building your own home. But the fact was, they were neglecting the home of God so that they could take care of their own, their own things. And then God says, point blank to them, consider your ways. says it time and time again through Haggai. Consider your ways. And he says to them, he says, you, you drink, but you're, you're, you're so thirsty. You're never satisfied. You eat, but you're never full. You work and you toil and you put your money into a bag and the bag has holes in it. You never have enough. You never have enough. Well, they disobeyed him. They know what he called them to do, and then 
they've neglected to do so. And then they hear the voice of the Lord spoken through Haggai, and they act. And the temple is rebuilt even through the persecution that they face. He's the giver, and he can withhold as well. No person, no man, woman, or child can actually find true, authentic, satisfying, lasting rest if they're under the wrath of God in disobedience. And that's not a threat, it's just reality. I work in a high school and I see a lot of kids that are basically just lost ships out at sea that are not tethered to anything and they're just blown to and fro. You never know where they're going, you never know what's happening. Their thoughts are jumbled, they don't have much clarity. The majority of the information that they get is from social media. It's less than a month old. So when the tides turn from one month to the next, they're in. They don't know what's going on around them. They don't have conversations with their parents. They certainly don't have conversations with grandparents. You say something about having a conversation at home, and they're like, what are you talking about? We don't do that. That's where we are. They have so much unrest that's in no rest to experience rest. I, I mean, we... I think, the, I think that living in 2023 is a great time to be alive to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we have so many people that are, are that have no idea what authentic rest feels like, and then when they fill it with the Lord, they realize that it's real. Rather than just going through the motions and, and kind of having a little bit of rest here and there, but to submit to Him and have that rest. It's not that we have to change the way that we communicate the gospel or change the gospel itself. It's that we just need to communicate it clearly. And not add all those superlative things to it. You don't have to have a smoke machine to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And his rest is eternal. His rest is eternal because it's not therapeutic. His rest is eternal because it's not mere self-help. And his rest is eternal because it's not a shallow attempt at finding rest. When we had study in the word the other day take heed that nautical term of time down to the dock so that you may not be blown to and fro by the winds this is what this is what all that means it's not just like some easy believism some feel good message I could do that all day long I can tell you that you're the greatest thing in the world and I could go straight to the whole scene and just be like you know what I mean if, if God was here right now he has his he has his video he, he has his Recorder, just recording everything because he thinks you're the greatest thing in the world. No, he loves you, but it's not about you. It's about his son. It's about obedience to his son. It's not about his son's obedience to you. He is king. You are servant. We are the we are the we're the table waiter. Even as an elder, like this position, I'm a table waiter. I don't determine what's on the menu. The menu is set. All I do is present the menu to those who are here to receive and hear. I don't get to determine. So just a reminder as we begin to close. All of this is so dense and so rich and knowing the connection to Psalm 95 and knowing the history and the context of what this means to those people. May we not walk away from this and say that is a, that is a great portion of text for those people at that time. No, no, no. This is why we don't just study the, the New Testament. We study the Old, we study the New, so we know that all of these stories are applicable to us and warnings to us, and they matter for us. So that we not be people who have hardened hearts. So that we be a people that don't put off for tomorrow something which is urgent today. That we walk with assurance that when we find our rest, we find our rest only in the bloodstained cross on Calvary. 
that we don't put our hope in our goodness, that we don't put our hope in our attendance, that we don't put our hope in the fact that we have great kids or anything like that. Those are good things. But our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's it. If you got nothing else, that's it. And if you have that, we live in a turbulent time. I get that. But you can walk forward boldly knowing that He is your rest. He is your refuge. He knows he, he knows the beginning of time. He knows the end of time. There's nothing that's off his radar. There's nothing that's a surprise to him. Christ wasn't a backup plan. Christ was the plan. And it's being lived out right now. So I want to end by taking a moment to tell you a story about a man who found this rest that's being talked about here. His hardened heart was cold, and he had a heart of flesh. And as a result, his obedience to the Lord shone through in all the trials that he faced. So I'm going to end with this today. I don't normally do this. Ira Stanfield, an accomplished musician and minister, dedicated his life to serving the Lord. Ira spent years preaching across the United States and 40 other countries around the world. He married Zelma Lawson in 1939, and after nearly 10 years of marriage, Zelma left Ira in 1948. He had been ministering around the world and around the country, and she felt that she no longer loved him. He fought to save his marriage, but ultimately was unsuccessful in doing so. In the year 1950, in a state of great despair due to the divorce and the recent knowledge that he received that Zelma was engaged to marry another man, Ira began humming a song while driving home that day. When he arrived home, he quickly put the paper or the song to paper. It was a song that reflected his dependence on the Lord, regardless of what is unknown and what the future may hold. Unfortunately, Zelma would die one year later in a car accident in 1951. Ira would continue to face many trials as the years went by. The death of loved ones, cancer prognosis, and many other situations. Eventually, Ira would meet the one who holds his tomorrows in 1993. Two years later, Bluegrass musicians Allison Krauss and Union Station were awarded the Grammy for their recording of Iris' classic hymn, I Know Who Holds Tomorrow. So I'm going to read a portion of the song to you. I don't know about tomorrow. I just live from day to day. I don't borrow from the sunshine for its skies may turn to gray. I don't worry over the future for I know what Jesus said. And today I walk beside him, for he knows what lies ahead. Many things about tomorrow that I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds the future, and I know who holds my hand. I don't know about tomorrow, it may bring me poverty, but the one who feeds the sparrow is the one who stands by me, and the path that be my portion may be through flame or the flood, but his presence goes before me, and I'm covered with his blood. Let's pray.
Lord, I thank you for this beautiful day that you've given us. I thank you that your word is not a hollow word. I thank you that you even give us the ability to understand your word with our finite abilities. God, I thank you most of all that despite our actions, our insufficiencies, our corrupt minds and hearts, that you were so gracious as a loving Father that you sent your Son to bridge the gap that no man could bridge. We thank you so much for him. We thank you that we have a God that is not a God of our own material creation, but that you are the one true living God, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, that you know our every struggle, that you know our every temptation, that you know our every blemish, but yet you love us so much that through the Holy Spirit you would call us in love to obey you and to follow you. God, I pray that you work through our hearts this week and in the continual weeks to come. God, knowing that Thanksgiving is coming up, I pray that you make us be a people of your word that we can approach loved ones with love, to have loving conversations one-on-one -on -one if need be, to restore relationships, to speak truth into situations. And God, I pray right now that you be working in the hearts of those who we may need to come and have these discussions with that they would have ears to hear and eyes to see that you, Lord, would work to restore their heart to turn it from stone to turn it to flesh. God, we know that you are actively saving so many in these days. We pray that you use us to walk faithfully and to do the work of evangelists. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for joining us in New Life Baptist Preaching. We hope that you join us each Lord's Day in this study of the letter of Hebrews where we learn Jesus is better. Remember to subscribe so that you don't miss any sermon.